Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Life of Elijah, which is a study on Elijah's life found in 1 Kings. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. All right, 1 Kings 17, we'll start in in verse 8. Lord, we are thankful for your inspired and errant word. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to come before it today. Lord, we are so thankful for this word. It's life-changing, it's life-breathing, it's sharp. God, thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we ask that you would speak in this moment, that you would be alive, present. We want to meet with you, Holy Ghost. We want to meet with you, Holy Spirit. You are the only one that matters in the room this morning. Lord, we came today to celebrate you. We came today to hear from you. We came to exalt Jesus. You are the only person in the room that matters. Come, Holy Spirit. It's the deepest desire of this church. God, I know these people. Our deepest desire is that you would be Lord in the room. You would speak. You would breathe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I thought this week about Charles Finney, who was that lawyer, converted preacher. Remember, we've talked about Finney before. He was used in these great revivals in the 19th century. At some point, some historians say as many as 50,000 people a week are giving their life to Jesus. That's a lot of people, y'all, especially when you consider the, the population wasn't as dense as it is today. D.L. Moody said this. He said, look at the praying Finney whose prayers, faith, sermons, and writings have shaken the whole country. D.L. Moody, he's shaking the whole country. Finney, Charles Finney had a traveling partner named Daniel Nash. He's sometimes referred to as Brother Nash, Father Nash. I think there was a wrestler called something Nash. I can't think of that on the top of my head. Nash would, Daniel Nash would go to a town a few days before Charles Finney. Charles Finney is this evangelist, this Hot preacher. Finney says at one point in his life, if he was preaching to a crowd and the crowd was looking to him in his eye and nodding, then he knew he wasn't doing a good job. Charles Finney said, I knew I was doing a good job when people started to put their heads in their faces and began to weep. That's when I knew that I was getting somewhere. Um, Charles Finney was that kind of, kind of sharp preacher. But, but Nash would go before Finney, he would go to a town and he would post up in some hotel or some little room and he would begin to pray and he would pray all the way through Finney's meetings and he would gather a few people from the town who would pray with him and um, and Nash would just cry out to God. Now, Charles Finney was an incredibly effective communicator, but he was held up by an effective intercessor. And I wrote in my notes that if you think that my preaching isn't good, it's your fault because you ain't praying for me. It's on you, yo. Charles Finney wrote, he said this, On one occasion, when I got to town to start a revival, a lady contacted me who ran a boarding house. She said, Brother Finney, do you know a Father Nash? He and two other men have been at my boarding house for the last three days, but they haven't eaten a bite of food. I opened the door and peeped in at them because I could hear them groaning. I saw them down on their faces. They have been this way for three days, lying prostrate on the floor and groaning. I thought something awful must have happened to them. I was afraid to go in and I didn't know what to do. Would you please come see them? Charles Finney answers, no, it's not necessary. They just have a spirit of travail in prayer. Just praying. And this was a common occurrence for Daniel Nash and Charles Finney. Now, 
Finney and, and Nash were both in a town called Brownville doing meetings when Charles Finney said one of the most prophetic moments of his life, um, he said that God spoke to him very clearly that, that God was going to send a great revival to a town called Governor, which was not too far from where they were. But Finney didn't really know anything of Governor. or um, The only thing that he knew is that there were some people from Governor who came to oppose him at one of his meetings before. Now, Finney said this wasn't a common experience or like a like a hunch, but he was sure that God had prophetically spoken to them. Revival will come to governor. And so Finney sends Nash up to governor to check it out. Again, he doesn't know much about it. And Nash comes back and says, um, there are two churches in governor. There's a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church. The Presbyterian church doesn't even hold meetings on Sundays anymore. They don't have a pastor. But the Baptist church seems to have some kind of life. And so after Nash came back and reported to Finney, they, they left um, Brownville and they headed towards Governor in obedience for, to this prophetic word. Now when Finney began to minister in Governor, the, the Baptists of the city began to oppose him. They spoke out against him publicly. A group of young men kind of banded together as the opposition to Finney and they um, decided that they wouldn't let Finney's fanaticism take part in their city Charles Finney is a, um, a really important figure in history. He kind of invented the altar call, right? Like, so when you think of um, the great preachers uh, in history, you think of Jonathan Edwards, this very um, stoic, articulate man who would give a sermon very kind of straight through. It felt like a, like a lecture, you know? Um, but, but Finney was a lawyer, and so Finney would, would, would argue people into, into conviction. And, and at one point, Finney... Um, preached to a crowd, and then he said this, whoever wants to respond to the gospel today and bow their knee to Jesus, you should stand up right now. And no one knew what to do because no one had ever done an altar call before, not like this. The crowd just kind of stared at him. Um, And Finney kind of put his hand on the table and said, well, today you have rejected Jesus and walked away. Um, uh, And Finney, as as he preached, he started to do this, and eventually people would stand up and just weep. And they they did the, um, oh, what would you call it? They, they had a, uh, kind of an altar up front for people who were seeking God. I can't think of the term off the top of my head. Where people who were anxious would come and cry out to God. And so Finney was different is what I'm trying to say. And he got a lot of rejection. People called him a fanatic. They called him um, a stirrer up of emotions. Um, but by God, I think God used Finney in incredible ways um, to bring revival across this nation. So I've always been a Finney fan. I say all that to say that the Baptists didn't like Finney's emotional state you know when you're used to a service that's very um that's very proper and you come to church and all of a sudden people are weeping and rolling on the ground and crying and that that seems to offend the well put together um i'm not sure why but good god our nation needs to do some weeping somebody say hallelujah um uh, so, so Finney and Nash were opposed, and they they did every this this group of young Baptists did everything they could to shut the meetings down. Now, Finney and Nash came to town with a prophetic word that God was going to pour out revival. But when they get there, the only believers, the only really functioning church, opposes them. And so Finney wrote in a diary that just he and Daniel Nash retired to a grove, and they said that this problem must be sorted out in prayer. And they prayed alone in this grove, they said, until they were sure that heaven answered and that all of hell couldn't resist their prayers. They, 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 uh, the, the church used to call that prevailing in prayer, like praying until something breaks. So not this like, Lord, send revival, but like, God, send revival, like, 
pressing through in prayer. And so Finney and Nash laid in this grove and prayed until they were confident that God had heard them. And so the next Sunday, Finney preaches Sunday morning. And then at 5 p.m., he calls a prayer meeting. It wasn't a particular heightened emotional prayer meeting. It was just kind of a prayer meeting. They were praying for God to move. God save souls in the city. And But the group of Baptist young guys who had spearheaded the opposition... They showed up to spectate, you know, kind of sitting on the back row with their arms crossed. And Finney wrote that it was clear that they didn't come to participate, but to watch and critique. But this was just a prayer meeting and nothing in particular was controversial happening. But towards the end of the meeting, Daniel Nash stood up to address the crowd and he locked eyes with this group of young men. And he warned them of their stiff neckness and hard heartedness. And he warned them that they were resisting the Holy Ghost and they should beware of resisting the Holy Spirit. And at one point, Nash kind of pounds his hand on a pew. He was kind of up front, pounds his hand on a pew, on a pew and he says this, Now mark me, young men. God will break, break your ranks in less than one week, either by converting some of you or by sending some of you to hell. He will do this as certainly as the Lord is my God. Now, if that isn't an Elijah-like declaration, I don't know what is. Daniel Nash immediately fell to the ground and continued to groan in prayer. Now, Finney wrote that he was worried that Brother Nash might have gone too far, okay? Um, Finney trusted Nash, prayed with Nash, but he well, yeah, maybe Nash just got a little emotional in that moment. And Finney wrote that he was a little uncomfortable with the declaration. But Finney said that, that so that was Sunday night at 5 p.m. And Daniel Nash said, within a week... You'll either give your lives to Jesus and really get saved or you'll go to hell. And Finney said it was Tuesday morning when the leader of the group came knocking on his door. Finney said that he was distressed and anxious, visibly shaken. And he asked Finney, what should I do? What do I do? Finney told him to pray, give his life to Jesus, exhort his companions to give their lives to Jesus and that he should not stop exhorting them until all were hoping in Jesus alone. Finney said, to his knowledge, nearly all of the group, if not all of the group, was saved by the end of the week. Now, this morning, we'll turn to the life of Elijah, and we'll find Elijah, again, making these kind of bold claims. We'll find Elijah obedient to God in in even the minute instructions. We find Elijah, like Daniel Nash, a man of great prayer, petitioning God until breakthrough comes. And we'll find faith, and, and the kind of faith that has energy and momentum it's more than just an intellectual commitment or a a belief that God can do something but it's but it's a sure conviction that God will do something and it and it has energy like it postures itself to be in alignment with what God is going to do it's just not intellectual assent but it's deep belief this morning we'll learn that God is concerned with us learning obedience even when we can't see the full picture There's a little principle in leadership sometimes. They say that you should always give the why behind the what. Don't just tell people what you're going to do, but tell them why you're going to do what you're going to do. And that helps them to buy into the vision. But I want you to know that God does not always give you the why behind the what. He just tells you what to do. And you don't understand why he's telling you what to do. And you can't see the full picture and you don't understand all the ins and outs. And it might not even make sense to you, but God's still telling you what to do. God's not concerned with everything making sense to you. God's after bold resilience and prayer in the life of Elijah. God loves praying men and women that pray until they get breakthrough. Why does God so enjoy those who keep knocking? You remember how many times he talks about prayer and he talks about persistence and steadiness? Like, don't let go until you 
get breakthrough. I don't know why God loves that, but he loves it. He's after people who will risk their reputation, put everything on the line, risk your livelihood. At times, risk our safety. He calls many to preach the gospel in hostile areas, to risk being rejected by culture. Faith is risky, y'all. Faith is risky. And what I've come to the conclusion as I've read and studied this week is that God wants from me a lifestyle of faith. God wants you to grow in faith and growing in faith means growing in your willingness to act even when you don't understand. And that is hard. But it's what he wants from you, pleases him. Let's read 1 Kings 17. We'll start in verse 8. I'll read through verse 24. Today we're going to read Elijah's encounter with the widow at Zarephath. Starting in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, him being Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. Remember, they're in a famine. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil and a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it. Bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent and neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. He says to her, give me your son. He took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So let's pick up in the life of Elijah. You remember we left off last week. Elijah was at the brook at Cherith. Remember he um, pronounced to Ahab, there will be no rain until I say so. There will be great famine, no rain until I tell you. And then the Lord takes him to the brook Cherith where he drinks from the brook and he's fed by the ravens with bread uh, in the morning and in the evening, bread and meat in the morning and the evening. Do you remember that? So now he's at the brook and God speaks to him and he says, get up. I want you to go to the widow at Zarephath and she will provide for you. My first point is that the life of faith does not allow us to idle, to remain idle for too long. 
Elijah was hidden at the brook. Ahab had not found him there. Somebody say hallelujah. He was safe. The towns of Israel were plagued with famine, but Elijah's got water to drink from the brook and he's got bread and meat from the ravens. Maybe Elijah was lonely, but I promise you, Elijah was used to being lonely by now. So he has this kind of perfect little scenario going on. He has peace. There's nobody to bother him. There's no boss man telling him what he's doing wrong. He's just kind of hanging out by the brook, enjoying prayer. I think he meditated on scripture. I think the prophet, the man of solitude, is in his element, man. Things that life's good. And I think if Elijah is all like us, I think he had hoped that the water would keep coming. God, let the birds keep bringing the bread. I'm confident that Elijah thought God would keep him hidden at the brook in the quiet, fed, protected place until the famine was over. I think Elijah was comfortable in his element. I I think his spiritual life was thriving. I think he prayed, meditated on the scripture. But God has no intention of leaving Elijah in his comfort. Isn't God like that? This week I was reading uh, a biography on the life of John Calvin. And I laughed on multiple occasions because John Calvin uh, said that he intended to live a life of uh, a quiet life of an academic. And he was going to give himself to personal study. And he kept using the phrase, um, I think he I think he was saying he was going to live in literary serenity. The only problem was that there was reformation happening and people were being burned at the stake. And every time John Calvin tried to set himself up to just live in the quiet and study, he kept getting called by pastors to come pastor this church and preach here. And for some reason, they kept wanting to pull him into the middle of the fight. One minister says to Calvin uh, in Geneva, says to Calvin, um, Calvin says, uh, he's asking Calvin to pastor a church in Geneva. And Calvin says, no, I'm, I'm going to focus on my personal study. I'm going to, I'm going to be a man of study. And the, and the, and the pastor says to Calvin, curse your retirement. He said, you're going to, you're going to live with an attitude of leisure during this time of great turmoil. And that wasn't the first or the only pastor to say that to Calvin. God's not so concerned with us living quiet, serene, Lives free of controversy, free of debate, free of turmoil. You know, it takes no faith to live a life like that. And for some reason, God, one of God's top priorities is that you learn to be a person of faith. So, of course, he's not going to leave you at the brook, Cherith. So God let the brook dry up. The season of solitude is done. Now he's got to live with a widow. I'm sure she had ways, man. I'm sure she liked the toilet paper going one way, right? And Elijah wanted that toilet paper to go under. Doesn't get to live alone anymore. Why not let Elijah stay at the brook? Because the life of faith is always moving us forward from glory to glory. A life of faith is not stagnant. If you want stagnancy and comfort, you do not want faith. The life of faith is constantly learning to trust God at a greater capacity. It's believing God against all odds. God had more for Elijah to learn. He intended to stretch Elijah far beyond what he had currently experienced. And Elijah cannot live idle because God's not finished with him yet. God's not going to let you live idle. He's not finished with you yet. 
If we're going to grow in faith, be people of faith, if we're going to embrace this kind of posture of Elijah, you have to be willing to get up and move when the water dries up. Got to get up and move when the water dries up. Now, Elijah is called to Zarephath, which is in Phoenicia. As one commentator puts it, is the very heart of Baalism. Zarephath is not in Israel. It's in Phoenicia. Remember, Elijah prophesied drought to Israel, to the region, because they had turned and worshipped Baal. Baal was considered the storm god who gave rain, which in an agricultural society is important. So Elijah confronts Ahab concerning his Baalism. Do you remember, Ahab is married to Jezebel, who was a princess of Phoenicia. So Jezebel, and again, scholars say that Jezebel most likely held a high position in the temple of Baal. She was some sort of priestess, the daughter, the princess, the daughter of the king always was. And so Jezebel was a princess and priestess in Phoenicia. And now God's telling Elijah that he doesn't get to stay at the brook Cherith anymore in the quiet, but he actually has to go to Phoenicia, to Jezebel's homeland, to the heart of Baalism. And the overarching narrative line continues. Elijah now confronts Baal, not in Israel, but in Phoenicia. God positions Elijah in Jezebel's homeland, takes Elijah to her region. Elijah now walks the streets that Jezebel once walked. Elijah now lives in Baal's territory. And there's a widow and a son who God will use Elijah to bless in a season where all other families who worship Baal experience famine and drought, God has picked a widow. Do you know God has a things for widows? If you didn't know that, he's got a things for widows and orphans. God has picked a widow, sent Elijah to that widow, and said, now watch what I will do even in the heart of Baalism. Isn't it like God to tell Elijah, get up from your place of comfort, walk 100 miles, about 100 miles, walk 100 miles to Zarephath, And go live in Baal's territory. Go stand in the line of fire. Walk right in the middle of all the trial, all the confusion, all the risk. But you got to be sure that when God calls you into enemy territory, it's not for you to be defeated. And so that God can declare himself sovereign over even that territory. Make his goodness known even in darkness. Even darkness is not dark to him. So that you stand in the place of confusion and trial and turmoil. And you proclaim with boldness the goodness, the power, the supremacy of Yahweh. And God will make himself known as you stand in enemy territory. But you got to quit biting your nails about it. you got to quit longing for the brook at Cherith. God is God in Israel. He's God in Phoenicia. He's God in South Carolina in the Middle East. He's God in Iran today. He's God in China. He's God when you find yourself in a classroom that rejects prayer and a workplace that dishonors the gospel. He's God in the middle of your financial crisis. He's God in the middle of your marriage issues. He's God when your kids are rebellious and your business feels like it's failing. If you'll hang on long enough and keep pressing yourself to grow in obedience and faith, he'll prove it to you. And he'll prove it to everybody that's watching. Everybody else is getting skinny, but the widow and her son are still looking kind of fat. What's going on at her house?
He's God. And sometimes God says to you, you've been at the brook Cherith long enough. Get up and go to Zarephath. And it'll make zero sense why God is calling you to Zarephath until it makes sense. Sometimes what God's asking you to do makes no sense until you wake up one day and it makes sense. And that's the life of faith. Now, the widow is supposed to provide for Elijah. That's what God says. The widow will provide for you. But this widow only has enough food to make one meal for herself and her son, and then they plan on dying. I love this passage because it displays the compassion of God to send Elijah to this widow who is preparing her last meal before death. But the humor of God, because the widow ain't got no food either. God sends Elijah to the widow and the widow to Elijah and says, the widow will provide for you. But the widow has no food, has no water, and Elijah doesn't have any food or any water. Elijah's been fed by the birds of the air and the ravens ain't following him there. She's empty-handed. She does not have enough resources. And Elijah has no resources. The only thing they have is a word from God. Elijah has no resources. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any flour. He doesn't have any oil. He doesn't have any friends. He hasn't networked with the right people so he could call a favor. He, He doesn't have any of that. All he has is a word. So Elijah tells the widow, bring me some water. And as she walks away to get him water, he says, and a cake, bring me a cake. That's what my wife does to me. She says, can you get me a glass of water? And then she goes, and get this and this and this and this. And I say, I know your ways. I know your tricks. You're not as tricky as you think. The widow says, I don't have that much. I've only got enough to make a little cake for myself and my son. And then we're going to die. And Elijah says, take that little bit that you have and make it for me. And then the God of Israel, she's not, a Isra- she's, she's not an Israelite. Then the God of Israel will cause what you have to last until the rain comes again. Now she's, she's backed into a corner here. She has two options. Take a risk. Trust the word. Again, no natural resources. You understand what I'm saying? They're no natural resources. She's got to, she can trust the word. Or she can go home and make the flour and make the food for her son and die. She could tell that crazy old prophet, keep walking. But she cannot appeal to logic. Faith is not always logical. It's not illogical. It supersedes logic. Rises above the realm of natural reasoning. It's not irrational to believe that God who created the universe out of nothing can create flour out of nothing. That's not an irrational belief. It's the fact that God will create flour out of nothing on your behalf in this moment when your son is starving and everyone's getting real skinny. That can't be worked out by invoking the laws of logic or reasoning or the scientific method. I know it's over overused in Christian culture, but consider Peter stepping out of the boat to walk on water. What he knows from his natural cognitive reasoning, he's a fisherman, man. He knows people sink. 
He's been around water his whole life. People sink. The basic laws of nature dictate that man is not buoyant enough. He cannot stand on water. Men don't stand on water. Peter's forced to trust Jesus here, the creator of water, creator of the universe, rather than his reason. Rather than what he knew from experience was consistent concerning water and people. What's consistent concerning water and people, according to the reason of Peter, is that people sink. He knows that. But sometimes God calls you to step beyond what you understand to be consistent from your experience and to step into a paradigm and a realm where you trust the God who is the Lord of your experience. It's not illogical to trust Jesus to step out on the water. Jesus created water. He could certainly tell water to hold you up. But he didn't get there by crunching his bank account and looking at all the numbers and taking a little sample of water and saying, hmm, is it firm enough for me to stand upon? You understand what I'm saying? It's not, it's not illogical or inconsistent to say I'm going to trust and believe that God's going to move. But you will not be able to reason your way there. Okay, so the, the widow doesn't get to get her flour and her oil and, like, take out a credit card, you know, like people do with cocaine. Sorry, that's the imagery I got. And, like, how much can we use here? Like, she, she doesn't get to do that. She doesn't say, if we use, a, you know, just a tablespoon, maybe I can make him a really small cake, like one of those little Chick-fil-A minis. Like maybe I can make that, make everybody a mini. You don't get, you don't get to reason your way into faith. You have to trust, believe, and obey. It's not illogical. It's beyond logic. It supersedes logic. And, and for some reason, you, this is the God you serve. I didn't make this up. For some reason, God likes that. God loves when people trust him even beyond their own natural reasoning. He likes it. He's actually concerned that as you grow in, grow in your Christian life, you grow in holiness, yes. You grow in generosity, yes. You grow in sacrificial love, yes. Please, God, grow in sacrificial love. You grow in all this. But he's also concerned with you growing in your ability to step out in faith, to believe him beyond your natural understanding. And that can be annoying. But it's true. For some reason, God's deeply satisfied with that. Smith Wigglesworth, you know, the healing evangelist we talk about some. He, there's just a quote from him that goes around that, that, that shocks you when you first hear it. But Smith Wigglesworth used to say that if God was not moving, he would make him move. Smith Wigglesworth would say, if God's not moving, I'll make him move. And that wasn't intended to be a statement of arrogance, but, but actually a theological statement. What Smith Wigglesworth was saying is that theologically... What I know about the heart of God is that God loves faith. God jumps on faith. For some reason, this is a theological confession, God is really pleased when people hear his word and step out and act. They do something. He said, I don't know why, but I know it's true. So if God's not moving, Smith Wilkersworth said, I will position myself, posture myself in faith, and God always seems to step in. God cherishes faith. Jesus says, when I return, will I find faith? Now, Elijah is called to walk into the heart of Baalism by faith 
He's not given any resources. He's not given any piggy bank. God didn't cause the birds of the air to drop a little couple gold coins or anything like that. He's just given a word. And now the widow doesn't have any resources. The widow's just given a word. And the widow will have to exercise her faith alongside Elijah's faith, trust the word of the God, and believe that the flower will stretch. And so she wrestles through her own inner turmoil. If she's wrong, she's just thrown away the last meal that she had to feed her starving son whose bones or rib cage is poking out. She chooses faith, rolls the dice, makes Elijah a cake. And when she turns around, there's just enough flour left over for her and her son. Isn't God good? Watch how God provides for the widow continually. The flour and the oil are not multiplied quickly into some massive amount of flour and oil that will hold them over for the next few years. God does not multiply the flour into a great mountain of flour that's going to sit in her kitchen for the next three years. Every time she turns around, there's just enough. Each time, there's just a little flour and a little oil left. Day by day, they're called to walk in faith. Forced to walk by faith. She learns that God is the God of provision today. He's not the God who does one miracle, but he sustains life day by day. By day, and when she gets up tomorrow, she'll either bite her nails and say, Oh, is there a flower? Or she'll have to, or she'll get up and trust God is the same God who provided yesterday, He'll provide today. She's forced to face that anxiety day after day. She can either choose fear or faith every morning. God will not give her 10 mounds of flour that will stretch, He'll give her just enough, and He makes her learn to walk in faith. And I feel God making me walk in faith. Now, we'll wrap up with the last little part of the widow's life. So after some time, they're still eating from the oil and the flour. Her son dies. Breath leaves him, is what the text said. And strangely, she's frustrated with Elijah. She took a risk on this crazy old prophet, you know, comes wandering out of the wilderness and says, give me your last little bit of flour. She took a risk on the man. She's not a Jew. She has no great reverence or respect for Elijah, at least no cultural reverence. She doesn't know Elijah. She took a risk on Elijah. And now her only son is dead. And she decides in her heart that the God of Israel must hate her after all. He picked her up just to crush her, gave her hope that maybe she and her son will live and have a life and a future. But now he lays dead in her home and the God of Israel must be rather satisfied with himself. How ignorant was she for believing that the God of Israel would love a pagan widow? She has a view of God that's twisted. And your faith can't thrive with a twisted view of God. God can only take you so far in faith with a, with a twisted view of himself. God will now expose her heart. God has allowed this scenario. Her son is dead and her, her, the, the, the bitterness that she's harbored towards God is now being exposed. It's now coming out of her heart. And at the same time, God's going to expose his heart. She says to Elijah in verse 18, 
What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance, to cause the death of my son. She thinks God killed her son because of her sin. Is that what she thinks happened to her husband? Is that why her husband's dead? Because she sinned? God took her from her? Her husband passed because of God's judgment? Seems silly looking from the outside in to say, no, God has just provided food for you for months supernaturally. How is it that you still think God hates you? It's easy from the outside in to say, how could you possibly reason that way? But don't we all reason that way in moments of grief? God must hate me. I knew he would bring his judgment on me sooner or later. In the middle of our grief, we start hurling accusations at God's character. God has sent Elijah to bail territory to lead this woman to grow in faith and provide for them supernaturally, and she's still unsure of him. Look at Luke 4, verse 25 and 26. Jesus says this, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. Elijah was sent to none of them but only to the Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Jesus is making multiple points at once, but at least one of the points is that, that, that God saw her. God saw her and sent Elijah there. Jesus says there was many suffering throughout the drought, but this foreign widow God saw, she was the object of God's affection, yet here she harbors resentment. Faith is trusting in God's supernatural ability to provide. Faith, faith requires a theological conviction, a conviction that God is omnipotent, that God is able to do anything. Faith requires that type of intellectual reasoning to c- conclude that God is the creator who created all things out of nothing. Therefore, if God made the rules, God can bend the rules, God can change the rules, God can supersede the rules. Faith requires that. But, it, but faith also requires a an understanding of the character of God. It's, it's not just that God is able to part the Red Seas when Israel stands before it, but that God is willing to part the Red Seas. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So faith, faith of course, requires the, the, the intellectual commitment to the idea of God being able to do anything, but it also requires um, a commitment to God's character, that he is loving, good, you, you have to understand some of God and trust that God will, he, he will do something. He's not just able to do something, but he will do something for his glory first, but also because he's a God of great love and compassion. Faith is believing that he can bring breakthrough, but also believing that he will bring breakthrough and then positioning yourself in a way that expects to receive breakthrough. And here we see the pattern of Elijah's life. Faith and prayer. Elijah, in this moment of great crisis, will teach this widow what faith looks like. He prays, stretches himself out over the young boy. Strange picture. Prophets do strange things, y'all. Stretches, lays on top of him. Nothing happens. Elijah prays again, Oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. You know, with conviction and boldness, he stretches himself out over the young boy and nothing happens. He prays a third time. Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Stretches himself out over the young boy and the life reenters the shell of a body that laid on his bed. 
He hands the boy to the widow and proclaims, See, your son lives. She responds, Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. We're slow sometimes, y'all. You've been eating supernatural bread for months now, and now you know. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come. In crisis, Elijah prays, acts, nothing. Praise, acts, nothing. Praise, acts, something. And that's the pattern of faith. Of pressing, knocking. Now as we wrap up today, I want to address two things. First, what do we learn from our text that... Yahweh intends to defeat Baal in Baal's territory through sending his servant to dwell there. God, the God of Israel is, is not going to leave Elijah in his comfort, but call him to step into enemy territory to make his strength and power and strong arm known even in the heart of Baalism. The God of Israel sees a Gentile widow, loves her enough to provide for her in the middle of a drought. We learn that God provides supernaturally as he, in his divine wisdom and providence, teaches us to walk by faith and not by sight. God provides as he leads his people into this process of growing in faith. Again, we learn from Elijah what consistent prayer looks like. Remember, James wrote, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. King James. The fervent prayer. That, that doesn't mean the, like, passing by prayer. Like, I, dear God, raise the, raise the sun. It, no, no, that not, that's not quite fervent prayer. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And I want to say to you, don't get mad at God when you find yourself standing in enemy territory with only enough food to last you a day. Don't get mad at God when you find yourself standing in a moment and all you have is a word. You don't have any resources. Maybe you're not the best networker. That's part of being a son or daughter of the kingdom and being called to a life of faith. He is going to make you stand at times with a word and no resources and stand firm so that he can proclaim not only to you, but those around you that he is the God of the resources. And when he speaks, the waves part. And when he speaks, the, the bread and the fish, they multiply. And when he speaks, the dead get up. And when he speaks, the leopard skin is healed. And when a, when a, when a woman brings her dead son by him in a funeral procession, Jesus places his hands on the pallbearers a little thing there and the the young boy gets up because when Jesus steps into a situation he doesn't need resources he is the only resource you need thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly visit christianrenewalhhi.org for more resources we hope you have a blessed week